Psalms chapter number 2 in the first verse tells us why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing. It's in the form of a question. I'll read it again. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word, Lord. I thank You that we have a source and a fountain of truth, and a place to which we can go, Lord, where we know we're getting the absolute fact of the matter, unbiased and uh, unaffected and unchanged, Lord, by the persuasions of men. Father, I thank You tonight that Your Word is preserved and that it's perfect. Lord, I thank You that it's a place we can go to get instruction. Lord, I pray that You would use these lips of clay. God, may they glorify You in what's said and done. Lord, I pray that if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, tonight would be the night. They'd not tarry any longer, but they'd come to know Your Son as their Savior. Lord, all these things, we ask them according to Your will. We ask them in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm especially interested in the question posed in verse number 1. Psalms chapter number 2 is not necessarily what we would call a messianic psalm, although it is certainly prophetic. Messianic psalms through the Word of God uh, designate to us certain psalms in which the psalmist is speaking prophetically as our Lord or about our Lord. Now, there's no question that our Lord is spoken of many times in this passage, but we find that the prophetic element of it or the future element of it Uh, Not just future from the psalmist's point of view, but future from your point of view and my point of view seems to take the main emphasis in this passage. And the question is posed that I believe that anybody with the basic faculties of observation could very well ask themselves today, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Can I tell you tonight that we live in a world that is raging? Now, there's no question as we look around, and it seems as though uh, you might say, Preacher, it's not that it's any worse than it used to be. It's just that we're more conscious of it. And I would be, I would dispute with you about that. When I turn on the TV and when I turn on the news and when I see the heinous atrocities of this world, 
when I see the cold and blatant and open wicked hearts of mankind taking life like they've never taken it before, absolutely spreading sin uh, as violently as they possibly can. I see a world that's full of hatred. I see a world that is unraveling. And I see that the time is getting short. I see a world that is raging in violence. I see a world that is raging in vice. I see a world that is full of anger at all times. We live in probably, I would say, one of the three most polarized times in our nation's history. I believe probably if you were to live in the mid-1800s, that was a very polarized time in our country. Some of you that lived through the 1960s know that that was a very polarized time in our country. And as we live today, I think there's no question that our country has never been quite as divided as it is today. But this is not just, uh, this is not just characteristic and symptomatic of our country, but all over the world. Just the other day, a, a group of Muslims went into a mall, and I believe it was Kenya, and began to take lives. And, uh, of course, we've got everything going on with Syria right now and the use of chemical warfare on uh, citizens. And uh, there's all kinds of various things going on in this day. And can I say that it's easy for a Christian sometimes to look at this world and to get a little discouraged? It's easy sometimes for a Christian to get his eyes on his circumstances and miss the sovereignty of God. And it's easy sometimes to look around at this world and ask the same question that the psalmist did in this passage. I'm thankful that God's Word has the answers for us today just as it did when this psalm was pinned down. I'm thankful that there is an answer to this question. And tonight I want us to look at three basic thoughts and I I want you to give your utmost attention as we examine the rejection of this world. I want to read the first three verses once again because I believe they're characteristic of the entire attitude of this world. Look what it says. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The question is posed. Uh, verse 2 describes the environment when it says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. Can I say that we live in a world today with an attitude of anarchy? We live in a world today with an attitude of total independence and self-dependence. And as we read this passage, we're conscious of a few things. The Bible tells us that this world has rejected our Lord. And we see it over and over again in the Word of God. But I believe the answer to this question is found in these three verses. Let me give you three reasons I believe the world is reeling and rocking today. Three reasons I believe there is so much discontentment. Three reasons that I believe are at the very heart and at the very core of the dissatisfaction of every man, woman, and child that's born in sin and never birthed the new birth into the body of Christ. First off, look in verse number 1. The Bible says that the people have imagined a vain thing. Could I say, first off, we see their anger. They're raging. They're full of hate. They're full of anger. And the Bible says that they've imagined a vain thing. Can I give it to you this way? The Bible said that there would come a day uh, when men would reject the truth of the Word of God and would follow fables, follow wives' tales, follow mistruths, follow what the Bible calls science falsely so-called. Can I say that the first reason that this world is filled with the violence that it has is because they have rejected the Scriptures? The Bible is very clear that this day would come, and I believe we've arrived at it, brethren, 
It's not just the infidels that have rejected the Word of God, but it's the church houses that have rejected the Word of God. I mean, it's not just the heathens and pagans. It's not just those worshiping the sun or worshiping creation. But I'm talking about Bible believers that don't even believe we have the Word of God any longer. I'm talking about people that name the name of Christ, people that call themselves Christians, people that are members of churches, and some of them even Baptist churches. But if you ask them, do you believe that God has given His Word and kept His Word and preserved His Word? Do you believe we have His Word and His words? They'll say, no, sir, I do not believe that. You say, preacher, I don't know anybody like that. You might know a few and not know you know them. You might know a few that uh, you would say, well, preacher, now they don't say they don't believe that God has kept His Word. Well, if they don't believe in a perfect Bible, that's what they believe. If they don't believe that God's powerful enough to keep His Word from the corrupting influences of man's hands and man's hearts and man's minds, then he believes that we don't have a perfect Bible. Let me say it absolutely unequivocally. I believe that this King James Bible is perfect. Absolutely perfect. I don't believe there's a single thing that needs to be changed about it. I think all we need to do is read it and believe it and obey it and trust it and apply it and meditate on it and memorize it and make it a part of our everyday lives. I don't believe anything needs to be changed about it. You say, well, preacher, you know that King James Bible is just hard to understand. First off, that's a cop-out. Because they've done studies that it's on a fifth grade reading level. I think most of us have a fifth grade education. If you don't, that's all right. Uh, I believe the Lord will still help you to understand His Word. And let me say even beyond that, uh, even if it was difficult to understand, which it's not difficult to understand, but even if it was, let me say that I believe we ought to put a little effort into it, don't you? We'll put effort into doing just about everything else in life. I mean, we'll put effort into reading the instructions for the stereo or the instructions. I, I'm getting uh, the, the Internet hooked up at my house. Uh, and let me tell you something. If I want to work right, I've got to be willing to read the instructions. Is that right? Well, let me tell you something. You want your life to work right, you've got to be willing to read the instructions. You say, well, there's words I don't understand, so get a dictionary. You say, there's words I don't understand. The context uh, will clearly explain the vast majority of them. I believe we ought to adjust our understanding to that of the Word of God. I don't believe we ought to be ashamed of any word in this Bible. And I don't believe we ought to add anything to this Bible. I believe it's absolutely perfect. And the world, uh, part of the reason for the rage and the anger is because there's no rule of truth in this world. No rule of truth. I mean, nobody, uh, or nobody uh, claims to know what's right anymore. Nobody claims to know what's true anymore. You ask people, what's right? And they say, well, it's relative. You can't have relative when it comes to right and wrong. By very definition, if something, if you have right and wrong, they must be absolutes. People say in this world, they say there are, the only absolute is there are no absolutes. You gotta be, you gotta have a degree to be that stupid, amen? I mean, come on now, there's absolutes everywhere. I mean, if your brain is deprived of oxygen long enough, you're gonna be absolutely dead. That's an absolute, isn't it? I mean, I jump off a building, I'm gonna go splat. Let me tell you, that's an absolute, amen? I mean, there's a multitude of things in this world that are absolutes, and yet uh, the academic mind seeks to examine the truths of God's Word and say they're all relative, there are no absolutes. Well, of course, if there's no stability, if there's no standard of truth, if there's no measure of right nor wrong, and the human soul cannot gain that which it craves the most, which is an understanding of a divine God, of course they're going to be angry. you got uh, seven billion people in this world all bumping heads into each other because nobody knows the right direction to go. 
You've got a world full of people. You've got political powers going one direction and political powers going another direction. I don't think any of them are getting anywhere, do you? We live in a world where there's religious structures all over the place claiming to know the way, and yet the Bible gives us the way, but they're not interested in what the Word of God says. Of course, that'll provide for a frustrated environment. Of course, that'll provide for anger. And of course, that'll provide for rage. Listen to what the book of Jonah says, chapter 2 and verse 8. This verse is always stuck in my mind. Ever since I first read it, it's made an impact on me. And I don't believe it gets dealt with enough. Uh, Jonah, uh, when he's in the uh, whale's belly, when he's in the belly of the whale, uh, makes his statement, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. We live in a world today that observes lying vanities. So what does that mean, preacher? It means that they know it's empty, but they seek after it just the same. They know it's wrong, but they seek after it just the same. The real question that we are to ask people today, and the real question that they're asking themselves, is not whether what they're doing is wrong, it's whether there is a right way. That's what they're seeking for today. That's what they're going after today. We live in a world that has cast off the Scriptures. It began in the Garden of Eden. And the first attack that Satan could wage, he attacked against the Word of God. He didn't seek to say the Word of God didn't exist. He seeked to change the meaning of it. That's key. That's that's important. Uh, It it means uh, nothing, uh, absolutely nothing, uh, just to say that it doesn't exist. Uh, There's plenty of people that say, well, uh, you know, I believe I'm an atheist. Uh, Satan's not worried about the atheist. You hear me tonight? Uh, Satan's not using the atheist tonight. Satan is using the compromising church tonight. That's who he's using tonight. That's who he's using. So Satan, he did not seek to uh, deny the existence of the Word of God, but rather to change it into being something that was impotent, meaningless in the lives of Adam and Eve. And let me say that that attack continues even to this day. To this day, let me ask you a simple question that I think all of us ought to be able to understand. Some say, well, you know, I believe this Bible contains the Word of God, but I don't believe it is the Word of God. Then whose is it to decide? Whose is it to decide? You say, preacher, it's probably just some obscure passage in the book of Leviticus dealing with ceremonial law. Let me say first off that even if it was, that passage is just as inspired as John 3.16. But let me say beyond that, Who's to say? Who's to say? If we have only portions and not the complete, who's to say what's true? Who's to say what's right? That's Satan's game. And it's always been. It's always been his design to deify man and to place within man's realm and man's grasp the ability to determine what is right and wrong for himself. That was what he told him in the Garden of Eden. He says that the Lord knoweth that in the day that ye eat thereof you shall become as gods, knowing good and evil. He was not saying you'll be able to discern what's good and what's evil. He was saying you'll be able to decide what's good and what's evil. And that's still the proclamation of Satan to this day, is to say that all things are relative and nothing is absolute, and that we can decide for ourselves. I believe we live in a raging world because they've rejected the Scriptures. But let me give you a second thing. Look at verse number 2 with me once again. The Bible says the kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel Together, Those two words are important, set and counsel, because they denote premeditated and orchestrated effort. It says, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying. Can I say that not only because they've rejected the scriptures, but because they've rejected the son is the reason that this world is raging. They've rejected the Son of God. And if we spoke first about their anger, could I say that verse number 2 deals with their agenda? And there is a mystery of iniquity 
that worketh even now. There is a concerted agenda. And I do not know uh, everyone that's involved in it. I do not know uh, if it's world leaders. I do not know if it's uh, men and leaders that we do not even know. I do not know how deep it could go. And you can call me a conspiracy theorist if you like. But I believe that there is a concerted effort in this world to reject the teachings of Christianity and of Bible truths. You can see it all over the place. Why, it's not going to be long. And I was thinking just the other day, me and my wife, we, we bought a uh, series uh, of uh, a History Channel type series thing called Shadows of the Third Reich. And we're reading about Nazi Germany and we're reading about the Holocaust and about Auschwitz and places like that. And reading about how that there was a calculated and concerted effort to dehumanize the Jewish people. And it began by blaming the Jews for everything going wrong. Germany at the time of Hitler's rise was suffering from a depression much like the rest of the world. And one of their propaganda tools was to blame the depression upon Jews taking jobs and uh, Jews taking influence and Jews subverting the German people. And they used this as a tool uh, to drive Germany to be uh, willing and to be uh, coerced into doing unspeakable things to God's children and to the Jews. You say, preacher, what are you driving at? I see the same thing with Christians today. I see the same thing in this world today, an attitude against Christians. Turn on your radio, turn on your television, pay attention to the newspapers, and you'll find that the attitude of most academics is that it's Christians to blame for all that's taking place today. It's the radical Christians uh, that are flooding the streets with guns. It's radical Christians that are flooding the streets with uh, hatred and racism. You'll find it all through the news. The idea that it's the Christians that are doing this. It's funny to me that an Islam that is based, birthed, and brought to fruition through hate and violence is more tolerated in this country. I'm talking about Islam. I'm not talking about radical Islam because all Islam is radical Islam. I'm talking about a, a religion. Religion that thrives upon the violence and hatred of the wicked hearts of the unregenerate men that adhere to its religion. Uh, that religion is more tolerated in this country today than Bible Christianity is. We live in a day where you can't pray at a football game, uh, but they can walk into a Jewish synagogue and have the same rights that that Jew does even though they're a Muslim and they hate those that are within that synagogue. Go try to plant a Baptist church in the Middle East. See if it's as easy as building a mosque in America. The truth of the matter is we live in a country that hates Christianity and that hates Christ. We're headed. You say, preacher, this is a Christian country. A country is only as Christian as its people are. There's no such thing as a Christian. A a country is a geographical location. A nation is a group of people. A government is the group that governs them. It's a question. If we're a Christian nation, then why aren't there more Christians in this nation? I have no doubt that we began as a Christian nation. I have no doubt that the people, and doesn't, I mean, listen to me, I could not give a rip whether Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were independent Baptists. I mean, I could not care less. That's not what it's about. You say, well, Jefferson uh, didn't believe in the Bible. And he didn't. He cut out portions of it like a lot of infidels today are doing. You say, Benjamin Franklin had some uh, deistic ideas. And I agree that he did. But let me tell you something. The men, women, and children that were plowing the fields, that were pouring their sweat and blood into this country were Christians. And they believed in the God of Israel and His Son, Jesus Christ, that was sent to die for their sins. That's what made this a Christian nation. You say, preacher, are we no longer a Christian nation? I don't believe we are any longer. You say, preacher, should we be? Of course we should be. You say, preacher, do you not believe that the Constitution and the bill... Yeah, I understand the Christian principles. 
that are at the foundation of this country. But are the vast majority of the people in this country true, born-again, spirit-filled Christians? I would say I don't believe so. This country has in a concerted manner rejected the Son of God. And it's not been incidental either. It's been intentional. I believe that's part of the reason for the rage and hatred. George Washington explicitly said that it's impossible to govern a country rightly without the Bible. Uh, it was, uh, I believe it was John Jay that famously said uh, that Christians ought to purposefully elect and prefer and require Christians to be their leaders in their country. The Bible says very clearly that when the uh, wicked rule, uh, that the people perish. And we live in a day where the wicked are ruling. You say, preacher, uh, are you saying that the problem's the White House? No, I know it's the church house. But I'm merely saying that we live in a world that's rejected the Son of God. Let me give you a third thing very quickly. If the first dealt with their anger and their rejecting of Scriptures, verse 2 deals with their agenda and rejecting the Son of God. But look at verse number 3. I believe it deals with their authority. The Bible says, and this is their words, they're saying this, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Their authority, they've rejected the sovereignty of God. They've rejected the authority of God. They've rejected God's proper place in this world. That's the reason the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing. Listen to what the Bible says in Luke chapter 19. And Christ is giving a parable in verse number 12. It begins in verse number 12. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. What a blessed passage. It, it speaks of our ascended Lord that's gone into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. The Bible says, and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him. Let me, let me tell you something. This is the mantra of the world that we live in, saying we will not have this man to rule over us. That's what people have a problem with today. That's what people have a problem with. They have a problem with authority. And that goes, I mean, for, uh, across the board. People in general have a problem with authority. And how many times have you heard someone say this? They're not going to tell me what to do. That's the attitude of the world that we live in. I mean, across the board, they're not going to tell me what to do. We have a president. And listen, if this bothers you, just be bothered. We have a president whose attitude is they're not going to tell me what to do. We have a president that it could matter less. I mean, it could not matter less to him whether he has Congress's approval to do anything, let alone the Constitution. But that's the day that we live in. And it's not just the president. Uh, the average person occupying pews says the same thing. We have a problem with authority. How dare someone tell me what to do? People that having a problem with uh, temporal authority typically have a problem with eternal authority. And it's been said many, many times that a person gains their attitude about authority and their attitude uh, about structuring their life from their attitude about their father. They believe about God however they believe about their father. Can I say I'm thankful that I have a strong God and I'm thankful I had a strong father. I'm thankful I was taught to respect authority. You say, preacher, are you saying you've never had your moments? Sure, I've had my moments. I'm flesh and blood just like anyone else. But we have to understand that there is authority, whether we recognize it or not. The Bible says there's coming a day when every knee shall bow. It does not say there's coming a day when we're going to vote if every knee shall bow. 
doesn't say there's coming a day when we're all going to discuss whether every knee shall bow. You say, preacher, what are you driving? I'm saying the authority is there whether we recognize it or not. We live in a world that has cast off the authority of God Almighty and of His Son. And they're seeking to break His cords, break His bands asunder and cast His cords from them. People just have a problem. i tell you why they deny the existence of God. Because if they can get rid of God, they can get rid of accountability. If they can get rid of God, they can redefine everything. If that He is the absolute tonight. Do you get that? He is everything tonight. He is the standard tonight. He is the Scripture tonight. He is the truth tonight. He is the basis tonight. He is up when up is up, and He is down when down is down. He is the absolute of the universe. That's who God is. You get rid of the absolute and everything's relative. They have a desire to get rid of God for that reason. And it's not that they just have a desire to live in a relative world. They don't mind you doing what you want to do as long as it doesn't bother them doing what they want to do. It's a matter of personal authority. Personal independence. No one will tell me what to do. I believe we live in a world that has rejected the Lord. The Bible said it would be thus. The Bible says in John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John chapter number 1 says that our Lord came unto His own, and His own received Him not. This world has cast off our God. But how is that affecting God? That's an interesting thought tonight. The initial question is why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? But notice what it says in verse number 4. Look at the Lord's position. Look at His attitude. It says in verse number 4, He that sitteth, that's an important word, sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. We see first off the Lord's calm. There's absolutely nothing that takes place in this world that affects His throne. There's nothing, nothing the political leaders in this world can do to dethrone the God of heaven. There's, they can vote, I mean, they can pass every law that they wish to. They can try to wrap, listen, they can wrap you and me up in a bureaucracy, but they can't wrap him up in a bureaucracy. I mean, they, they can try to regulate everything about our lives, and you go down the line and they're trying to regulate it. Old Vance Habner used to say, the only thing they don't tax yet is air, and I expect them to put a meter on my windpipe any day now. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little amazed that they haven't done it yet. I'm a little amazed. Of course, I don't know we say that. Uh, it's, a, it's a fact and it is truth that they do tax cities based upon their air pollution. doesn't matter what it is. Neighbor, it won't be long before they're trying to set your thermostat. I mean, it won't be long before they're running every aspect of our lives. But let me tell you something. They'll not run God. They'll not run God. I mean, try as they may, they won't run God. In fact, uh, Psalms chapter 2 and verse 4 indicates to me that the Lord's not even moved by it. doesn't even budge Him. I mean, He's not even got uncomfortable yet. He says, He sitteth, He sitteth, He sitteth. Usually when you're sitting, you're not planning on getting up. Amen? Usually when you're sitting, you're comfortable. Usually when you're sitting, you're not planning on moving. The Bible teaches that the Lord's attitude is that of calm. He's calm. It doesn't upset God what this world is doing. Let me tell you why. Because there's a day coming. There's a day coming. Uh, the Bible says that now is their hour in the hour of darkness. But not forever. He's calm. It hasn't upset Him. It hasn't disrupted Him. And let me say this. Your circumstances don't disrupt God either. I don't care if your world has been turned inside out and, and, and field dressed. It does not affect God on His throne. 
It does not unsettle God when your finances are hurt. It does not unsettle God when your health is failing. It does not unsettle God when your heart is broken. He's still God even in the midst of our storms and our trials. You say, preacher, are you saying that God is not upset? No, you know what I mean. Of course God's heart breaks when our heart breaks. Of course God has a desire uh, for us to have the things we need. And I would say even the things we want when it's a righteous want. But I'm merely saying when it comes to His authority, when it comes to His reign and His realm, it doesn't affect Him one bit no matter how bad things are. And it's been put this way, and I believe it's true, that when the waves go over our head, they're still under His feet. They're still under His feet. We see that He's calm. But notice not only the Lord's calm. Look at verse number 5. I like this. This is where it gets interesting. It says, Then shall He speak unto them. That's important. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. This is the Lord speaking in verse 6. And He says, Yet have I set My King upon My holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Let me say in verse 4 we see the Lord's calm, but verse 5 through 7 we see the Lord's coming. The Lord's coming. I told you to take extra notice in verse number 5 when it says, Then shall he speak. Because the Bible says in, uh, in the book of First Thessalonians that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. I know the Bible says with the voice of the archangel, and I have no doubt uh, that it will be the voice of the archangel. Or, 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 I'm about to get it, amen. The archangler. <laughs> the archangel. But whose voice do you think it is shouting? The Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter number 19, that the Lord is going to consume the armies of this world with a sharp two-edged sword that proceedeth out of His mouth. I understand that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 deals with the rapture. I understand that Revelation chapter 19 uh, deal. I tell you what, let's turn there. Let's just read it. I don't want to misquote it. Revelation chapter number 19. I understand that deals with His glorious appearing. Uh, but I believe that the same truth applies to both. That the Lord's power is in His Word and He can do as He pleases. Look with me at verse number 11 of Revelation chapter 19. You've read it many, many times. I'm sure you have. But John is speaking and he says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. That with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This world is going to continue to rock and reel. It's going to continue to persecute God's uh, children, and then it's going to begin to uh, persecute God's people. It's going to continue to hate Christians. The Bible says in the book of 1 Thessalonians that a strong delusion, a strong lie, or 2 Thessalonians, a strong lie would be given to them that they would believe that lie. The Bible teaches explicitly. I'm not going to give you a whole eschatology lesson tonight. Uh, You say, what does eschatology mean? It means it takes a long, long time. Somebody say amen right there. 
I'm not going to give you a whole lesson tonight, but just suffice it to say this. The Bible teaches that the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. I just read it the other day. In fact, today, Song of Solomon, chapter number 2, and I believe it's verse number 9, when the Bible says that my beloved spake unto me and said, Arise and come away with me. And we're listening and we're waiting for that day. It could happen at any moment. It could happen at any time. And beloved, let me say that I look forward to that day when the Lord comes back for His own. Uh, but after that, the Bible teaches us that we'll begin uh, the, what the Bible calls the time of Jacob's sorrow. The great tribulation period. The Bible teaches three and a half years of a resolved peace and a false peace between the nations in the Middle East. The Bible teaches that for that three and a half years uh, that the Antichrist will have fostered a false peace betwixt these uh, two groups of people. What seemed impossible. What seemed like the, uh, the unicorn that everybody was reaching for. That unattainable prize. Peace in the Middle East. It will seem to come to fruition. The Bible teaches it's a false peace. You can't have real peace until the Prince of Peace shows up. You can't. That thing's not going to be settled. The book of Genesis said it would never be settled. The Bible says that Ishmael would be a wild man. His hand would be turned every way against his neighbors. It'll never be settled until the Prince of Peace settles. The Bible teaches uh, that after three and a half years that the Antichrist will break his covenant with the nation of Israel. He will begin a persecution against them uh, that will make the Holocaust look like recess. The Bible says that if those days weren't to be shortened, that no flesh would be saved during that time. He's going to seek to destroy and eradicate the Jewish people. Let me tell you something. I, I just watched the other day some of the interviews with uh, uh, with uh, Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, and they spoke of how uh, now that we've moved past this, we can uh, trust that it'll never happen again. If we tell our stories, it'll never happen again. If the world will keep its eyes open, it'll never happen again. I hate to break their hearts, and I hate for them to break their promise, but the Bible teaches there's coming a day when there's going to be a great persecution against the Jews. At the end of this uh, second three and a half years, at the end of seven years in totality, the Bible teaches that our Lord will return. He'll not return in secret. and He'll not return as the meek Galilean. The Bible teaches in uh, Acts chapter number 1 that when He comes for His church, that this same Jesus shall in like manner come again also and receive you unto Himself. But when He comes back in power and in glory, He's not coming back as the Lamb slain. He's coming back as the King. He's coming back as the potentate. He's coming back as the ruler of this world. He's coming back to destroy the armies of this world, to destroy them with the word of His mouth and to vex them in His sore displeasure. Let me show you a third thing, and I'll try to hurry. Uh, I want you to notice not only the Lord's calm and the Lord's coming, but look at verse number 8. The Bible says, Ask of me. This is the Lord uh, speaking to Christ. It says, Ask of me, I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We've seen the Lord's calm and we've seen the Lord's coming. But let's take a look at the Lord's kingdom. The Bible says, and I'll read it again. It'll make more sense in that context. Verse 8, Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Do you know that there's a kingdom coming? Not just a king, there's a kingdom coming. Uh, a, a real political structure on a literal earth, on a literal throne, ruled by a literal king, who's literal God in the flesh amongst us. Listen to what it says in Daniel chapter number 2, and I'm just going to read a couple of uh, passages to you. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to if you'd like. Uh, Daniel is interpreting a, a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And there's a couple of these in the book of Daniel, but I'll read this one in particular. Verse number 31, he's interpreting this dream, and it says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Now, this is describing four great world empires that would stand, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and the Roman Empire. Listen to what it says, though. It moves past the scope of what would be history to us today and into the future when it says in verse 34, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them into pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together. It became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You say, preacher, I don't understand what that means. Well, turn over chapter uh, 7 with me and I'll read once more uh, a passage of Scripture in chapter number 7. And it gives a little uh, clarification, a little, little explanation of this passage. I just want you to read a few verses. Look, beginning in verse number 1, it says, this is uh, Daniel describing a dream that he had. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night. Behold, the four winds of the sea strove upon the great sea. And the four beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. This speaks of the Babylon whenever Nebuchadnezzar was cursed to his feet by the Lord, and he wandered for seven years as a beast of the field, and he did not have his sense, and he did not have his wits about him. But after that time period, the Lord raised him up, and I believe it was at that moment that Nebuchadnezzar was truly converted, truly accepted the Lord. Verse number 5 says, And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. This speaks of the Medo-Persian Empire in the Word of God that raised up on one side. One side got the prominence and preeminence. Verse number 6 speaks of Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire when it says, After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, and the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. It speaks being the leopard of the swiftness with which Alexander the Great conquered the then known world. The four heads deal with the four uh, generals and the four uh, quarterly sections that Alexander the Great's empire was broken into when he was cut down early. Look at verse number 7. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom uh, there were three of the first horns plucked up by the root. And behold, in this horn were, uh, were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. This deals with the Roman Empire, but it goes beyond the Roman Empire uh, to the empire of the Antichrist. Now this is where it gets good. Look at verse number uh, Daniel says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. You say, what thrones were cast down? All thrones were cast down. 
You say, even America's throne, even America's throne cast down. Uh, I'm talking the United Nations throne is cast down. The European Union's throne is cast down. China's throne cast down. Russia's throne cast down. The thrones of nations small and great. The thrones of nations weak and powerful. All thrones were cast down and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were open. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. You say, preacher, what do you read all that for? I read it all so that you can see it plain as day, right before your eyes in paper and ink in the living, breathing words of God that there is a kingdom that is coming, the likes of which this world has not seen at which the powers of this world will have no influence, at which the wickedness of this world will have no sway, a kingdom that will be ruled with a rod of iron and with the heart of God, and a kingdom at which our Lord shall sit upon the throne. There's a kingdom coming. I'll give you one last uh, six or seven, eight or ten thoughts. Amen. <laughs> I'll give you one last thing. I'm just going to say these to you. I've run out of time. But we see finally the rebuke of the psalm. Verse number 10, the Lord commands these kings to do three things. First, verse number 10 is to resign their independence. He says, be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. I'll tell you what would do our world leaders a lot of good is if they sit down and crack this Bible open and read it from cover to cover. I don't expect it to happen. I don't look for it to happen. I'm not looking, I've said it many, many times, I'm not looking for a better president. I'm looking for the king. But let me say that the only hope for this world, not only for countries and nations and governments, but for the individual, is that they resign their independence, their self-sufficiency, their pride, their notion that they have it all figured out, and be willing to hear the Word of God. Look at verse number 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You say, preacher, uh, what does that mean? They're doing the opposite of what they were doing before. Before they weren't serving the Lord. Before they weren't rejoicing before Him. But now they're commanded to do a 180 degree turn. And could I use the word repent? Repent. They've got to hear the Word of God. But they've got to be willing to repent of who they are. Not just what they've done. Of who they are. Repent not just of their sins, but of their sin. Not just of their religion, but of their self-sufficiency. We see that they're commanded to repent. One final thing, verse number 11, or 12, excuse me, it says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. We have it all summed up in the last phrase when it says, Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. In those three verses, in a roundabout way, you have a presentation of the plan of salvation. Because the final is that they receive the Son of God. 
They've got to be willing to receive the Son of God. It's not enough to be willing to listen to the Word of God. You've got to be willing to turn from your wickedness and turn from your iniquity and turn from your self-dependence and your self-righteousness. But it's not enough to turn over a new leaf. You've got to be willing to receive the price and the pardon bought by our Lord and Savior. Receive Him not just as a religious teacher, but as a living Savior. It's the only hope that this world has. It's not found in the White House. It's found in the church house and in the truth of God's Word. I told you tonight, I don't know what kind of message it is. I don't know what God may have done in your heart one way or the other. But I want to give you an opportunity to do two things. Let's say three things. One of them, if God's spoken to your heart, I want to encourage you to respond to Him. Two, if you have a loved one that's in need of salvation, you see their life and it's raging. You see their life and it's empty and full of vanity. Can I encourage you tonight to make your way to an altar and to pray for them? And finally, if you've never done it before, maybe if you have but you feel God pressing on your heart tonight, why don't you take a moment to pray for the salvation of our leaders in this country? I believe they need it, don't you? I believe that's the only hope, don't you? We're commanded to pray. You say, I won't pray for that president. Then you'll be in contradiction of the Word of God because the Bible commands us to pray for those that are in leadership above us. Uh, you say, preacher, you're trying to pad. No, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm merely saying if God's spoken to your heart, you'd like to take this opportunity, I'd encourage you to do 